Matthew chapter 5 and starting at verse 21. You have heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary might hand you over to the judge, and the judge might hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. And uh, it's a very warm welcome if you're new or visiting. Uh, this morning, we have um, the newish, our newish morning tea after the service. And... Um, I'd like to meet you there. If you haven't been to one, uh, you qualify, I guess, as newish. Uh, although I understand there are some people who have 80 years haven't been to a newish. You're not new. Um, but if you don't fall into that category, do come along. Uh, we'd love to have you. It's at the reception um, area after the service for about half an hour. Now, this morning, we are continuing our series looking at uh, the Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And... Uh, one of the things that strikes me as I'm reading through the, the, the Gospel of Matthew again is that some things in the story of Jesus' life are warm, warming to your heart. They're stories and events that you remember and you, you recall with uh, thankfulness and other things are a bit more challenging. But I think that's a natural and a right experience of hearing about Jesus. There are things about Jesus that should always challenge us and there are things about Jesus that should bring us great comfort and, uh, and assurance. And so as we approach this, we pray that God will actually help us to receive both of those things from his word. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we do pray that um, you would grant us your Holy Spirit and that he might show us and reveal to us your word this morning and so make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, back in 1973, Carl Men, just a long time ago, 50 years, um, Carl Menninger wrote a book about sin and he wrote this. Uh, it's 50 years ago, but I think some of it's quite interesting and relevant to us. He says, the word, very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. This, this is 1973 he's talking about. Uh, it was a strong word, an ominous and serious word, but the word went away. And he asked, doesn't anyone believe in sin? Now, I think that's a really interesting reflection. Probably the one thing I'd say between now and then is that a lot of what he says is true. Uh, the word is not an ominous and serious word anymore. It hasn't gone away. In fact, I think it's made a bit of a resurgence, except it's a way of uh, speaking um, in a dismissive tone about a Christian worldview, actually, if anything. It's, it's something that is used to dismiss Christianity rather than something that we are um, weighed down by most people, I think, certainly in our popular culture. And, and yet, the contrast is found in this morning's passage where Jesus speaks very openly and clearly about sin and judgment and hell. This is, this is worth just reflecting on. This is not a topic, this is not a side moment in Jesus' teaching. In fact, he talks about these topics Regularly, most of his teaching in the end is drilled down in part to this. Jesus doesn't run away from this topic. And as I said to you, this is perhaps one of those areas when we encounter Christ that we find something uncomfortable about his teaching. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to hear people who say, oh, we had, a, we had a minister, an old minister visit us and he talked a lot about sin. It's, it's not something that we like our ministers to kind of rant and rail about. We have visions of Jonathan Edwards preaching uh, hellfire and brimstone sermons in the 1700s and certainly don't want to return to that again. But the question, I guess, that when we come to a passage like this is why do Christians, and Jesus particularly, why does he have such a focus on the concepts of sin and judgment and hell? Because very clearly he does. I think Jesus reveals two reasons uh, particularly that he takes sin so seriously and they're worth reflecting on today. The first one comes actually at the end of uh, the little section that was read to us from the Sermon on the Mount. It's in verses 31 and 32. I've just, written, I've just pulled out verse 32 here. The section where he talks about divorce and remarriage. Now, I understand that there's a lot of pastoral questions that arise in this topic. We're going to do a series on um, gender and sexuality and marriage in May, and so I'm going to kind of leave a lot of the discussion on divorce and remarriage to that, because it, actually I don't think this is primarily a, a passage about divorce and remarriage. It's actually part of Jesus thinking about sin. And what he reveals to us here is that one of the reasons he takes sin seriously, why, why the, the Christian faith takes it seriously, is that it damages people. It makes victims of people. You see the language he uses here? He says... Um, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her the victim of adultery. See that? It's interesting because he's talking to Pharisees who have a particular a legal way around um, the, the permanency of marriage. And he says, actually, when you break that, it makes a, it's, it, there's, it's not a victimless sin. Sin is not victimless. 
And in fact, he goes on, he says, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Even, even the, the person who commits sin is marked by that. Uh, one theologian says this, sin tends to disintegrate both its victims and its perpetrators. And so one of the reasons why Jesus speaks about sin with great seriousness is that actually sin damages people. It makes... It creates victims, but it actually it damages both sides of the equation. And, and so Jesus takes it very seriously. Now, that's just a little, little section at the end of the passage, but it's worth reflecting on. There is a horizontal component to this, and that is important. But the overwhelming weight of Jesus' teaching in this section is not on the um, relational damage that sin creates, but the spiritual reality of sin and judgment and hell And that's really where he spends a lot of his time, and it's just worth uh, hearing what he has to say. In verses 22 and on, he says, I tell you, first of all, he says, you know about murder. He says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is really ramping it up here. And the impact of sin, the, the product of sin, is this deep spiritual judgment which he describes here. And he uses this um, language here, the danger of the fire of hell. They're actually, they're in, in the original language um, of Greek, which the New Testament is written in, they don't use a word that's directly hell. They use the word Gehenna, which is pregnant with a lot more meaning. Uh, Gehenna was a location. It was this little place. Let me creep around here. Gehenna is this little spot here. This is the, this is the, the city of Jerusalem uh, around uh, Jesus' time. And this little section here was a valley, the Valley of Hinnom, which is actually very relevant to the history of Israel. Uh, back, in, back in the time of the kings of Israel, a number of kings, Ahaz and Manasseh particularly in two chronicles, were told who left and departed the teaching of, uh, of uh, the God of Israel and kind of took on the, the practices of the surrounding nations, actually practiced child sacrifice as a, as a form of worship to those gods in that valley. And so it, it's a valley that's pregnant with terrible uh, spiritual connotations and, and social connotations, of course, as well. It's a place of great judgment. It's, it's a place of great evil great practiced evil and reflective of great spiritual evil. This is a place where the horrors of Israel took place, outside the city. And Jesus is saying, sin leads you there, leaves you in danger of ending up there, in a place like that. Now, some commentators say that in Jesus' time, actually, that was like a big garbage pit that was always on fire, and so the fire picks up that garbage pit image. It's not particularly clear whether that was actually the case. There's a lot of debate in scholars about whether that really was the case in Jesus' time. But either way, this valley was was a, a time of some of the darkest times of Israel's history. And Jesus is saying, that is, that is where you're in danger of ending up. But he builds on, on the impact of sin throughout this passage because he tells this parable of, um, of two people going to the, of a person going to the temple to offer, but they have, a, they have an issue between their foe or their enemy. And Jesus says in verse 24, leave your gift there in front of the altar. In other words, don't proceed with the offering. First, go 
And it's in part because he's, he's articulating something which the Scriptures build on, that sin actually separates us. It actually puts up a wall between us and being in God's kingdom, being before the Lord. Like, like the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna is this place outside the city, that is what sin sends you to, a place outside of God's care. A place... Now, that, you might think, oh, well, that big deal. Being apart from God, well, that's, that's some people just don't want to be with God anyway. Is that so terrible? I think it's possibly the most unimaginable thing, really. If you consider your life, you know, the Scriptures, especially when you understand the context of what the Scriptures are saying about God, right? Who is the, the Father of light, says James, from whom all good things come. Now, if, if that's really who God is, and if you consider your life and you think about all the, the good things in your life, the things that bring you joy, that bring you assurance, that bring you peace, that bring you comfort, but even the little moments that might fill your day today, the fact that you woke up and it, it wasn't like 30 degrees and 90% humidity. Like these, these are things which come from the Lord. Now imagine an existence where none of those exist anymore. Imagine a life where every every part of your existence is devoid of anything good. That's what it would be to live in an existence where you're separated from God. This is why hell is so terrible. It is that kind of eternal torment that Jesus is, is warning against. He's so serious about. It is to be in living in, under that kind of oppression and so he goes on and he says, just to make sure that we're perfectly clear about how serious he takes sin and judgment and ensuing experience of hell, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And then he says the same about your hand, cut it off. He says, this is so serious in your life, it is worth doing anything to get rid of. Now, if you, if you have a bottle of um, cyanide on your kitchen bench, you don't just whack the label poison on it and leave it there, of course. You get rid of it, right? Because you understand the capacity of this thing to destroy you. And so Jesus says, you do whatever you can to get rid of it. Whatever you can to get rid of it. Because for Jesus, in his teaching, sin, which leads to judgment and to hell, is the worst thing. Bar none. The worst thing. Now, I think this is meant to radically... Jesus is teaching... What's really interesting is, I was saying this to someone in the earlier service, Jesus' sermon, this is the start of his sermon. If you remember, last week we, we did the Beatitudes, this is the first thing he hits. He preaches for two chapters, right? But this is where he goes first. There's no funny kind of opening anecdote, no reflections on the Taylor Swift concert, you know, before he launches into sin and judgment and hell. He can't wait because he likes to talk about it, but because it's so serious. Because we, we, have to, we have to get oriented. We have to have the right perspective. Here's what one author says. The eternal realities of heaven and hell bring clarity to life and its many decisions now. Jesus saw a larger canvas and he lived under the greater realities of a future heaven or hell that awaits every person. You know, that's worth reflecting on. To what extent does what Jesus is teaching, it's not, it's not me, right? I didn't choose this. I can honestly say I didn't choose this passage. We're just working through Matthew. This is what we came to. 
This is what Jesus basically opens his, his, the content of his sermon with. Here it is. This is what Jesus is saying. If you believe what Jesus is saying, if he's compelling, if he's not just the kind of blue-eyed, blonde-haired guy, if he's not just warm and cuddly, but if he is as authoritative as you say he is, and this is what he's teaching, does it bring clarity to your, your perspective on life? And what's really important? I've put this graph, graphic up before in our church. That's a two-kilometer radius of our church, and within that circle are 60,000 people, most of whom, if Jesus is to be believed, face what he's describing now. Does that clarify our mission and purpose as God's people? I know it's tempting to want to kind of establish a little home away from home here and to feel comfortable and assured and surrounded by people like us. But the teaching of Jesus ramps it up for us here. It has to if he's telling the truth. If his warning is on point, it has to. It has to give us clarity about the the larger canvas of life and where our neighbours and the people around us sit. It has to. And so I ask you, do you have that clarity? Do you look at these issues with appropriate... I've got to be honest, this week I have because I've been preparing this sermon, but most weeks I don't because it's a fairly onerous thing to reflect on, especially when you, you bring the people you know and love under this teaching. Very onerous. But of course, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, well, yes, I can see how it might be relevant. Yeah, sure. But what about, what about me? How is, this, how is this relevant to me? I'm here. I'm here, right? Well, I think just, just reflect on what Jesus is teaching here, okay? Because as much as he's talking about this group of people, this unnamed group of people in this, 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 um, this surrounding neighbourhood, I think he's actually talking about us even more so. I think he's talking about us and there's a challenge here for us. Because, do you see what Jesus does in his teaching? Verse 21, he says, you've heard about murder and how bad that is. Verse 22, he says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. This is where it starts to get more challenging, of course, isn't it? Because what he's showing us here is that sin, sin that leads to judgment and ultimately to hell, is found not just in the big things of murder and sexual immorality and maybe corporate greed, but is found in the trivial things of life. The things which occur in our life on a daily basis. Now, how can Jesus do that? How can he just, like, take what clearly I think most of us would be happy to attribute to a murderer, perhaps, and bring it down and make it attributable to a much broader group of people. Well, he continues on and he starts to show us why it's attributable. In verse 28 he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, there's one of those trivial things, right? Just a look has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, Jesus is revealing something which we talked about last week, but is, is present in his teaching, the inside-out nature of the Christian faith. And Jesus is saying it's more than just a list of activities. It's about the deepest inclinations, desires and affections of yourself, the very things that you're chasing after and you prize and and you prioritise in yourself. And so suddenly a 
an activity which seems fairly trivial because of, because of the heart behind it becomes loaded with, with real guilt. Let me give you an example using anger because anger is a really interesting one for Jesus to use. Why is it that anger might, might leave you liable of judgment and hell? I mean, in fact, it's, it's interesting because Paul says in Ephesians 4, if you know the passage, he says, in your anger do not sin. That's interesting because he seems to imply you can be angry and not sin. But see, Jesus says, oh, anger could lead you to judgment. So what is the difference between anger and sinful anger? And I think, again, it comes down to not, um, oh, you yelled at a certain level, or you were in a certain power dynamic, and therefore that's why you yelled, but actually because of your, your heart. Let me, let, me, let me share from my own experience. I have young children on Monday morning, I have a busy morning. Okay, we have a staff meeting at 9.30. Um, Emily's out the door at 8. The kids have to be at school and then I have to come back in time. For... But inevitably what happens, I say, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready, we're leaving in five minutes. And of course, five minutes later, the kids are not ready, the shoes are not on, the bag's not packed, the lunch box is not in the bag, etc., etc. I say, let's go, guys. Come on, let's get it done. Oh, I don't want to go to school. Yep, okay, fine telling you, 10 minutes later, we're still in the house. We have progressed nowhere, right? 20 minutes later, we're out the door. We're charging down Mowbray Road. I'm sweaty now because I have to walk really fast to get there. The kids are whinging. Dad, I don't want to carry my bag. I snap. This is not unusual. Now, what is wrong there is that, of course, what I want to do is be in control I want to be in control of my morning. I have so many things on. I want to be in control of my timetable. I want them to understand that my timetable is important. I don't want to be seen like the boss who's late to his own meeting. And so, my own heart, driven by my own desires for control and approval and an appearance of uh, competency, drove me to be angry. That's what makes it simple. Let me give you another example. I had a boss when I was a young solicitor who, whenever I came into him with a new idea, would just yell at me. Say, you don't know what you're talking about, just go and do what I asked you to do. Now, I was a pretty, I was a pretty good employee. I, didn't, I, I, I wasn't trying to usurp him. I, just, I was just excited by the practice of law. I know that's, that's hard to believe. <laughs> they, see, they squash it out of you quickly, right? He didn't like that in some way I was lowering his power and authority in that situation by in any way questioning his direction. And that's why he'd flare out. Like that, that's, that's why he would get so upset and another boss would just take it in his stride. Say, oh yeah, that's interesting, but it doesn't really work for these reasons. You see, your heart is what... Is what is what challenges, and that is what, that's what broadens it ultimately. And that's what, you know, we talk about the Christian faith being an inside-out faith. This is what we mean. But there's something even more challenging, I think, by this, you see. See, because for us, if Jesus is right, and you can, actually, the list is much broader than the big sins of the Christian faith, right? If it's actually much broader, this is problematic for us. See, when it's the big things, we can kind of, siphon them off, right? 
Thankfully, the vast, vast majority of people will never be tempted to murder someone. Ah, that's good news, isn't it? But if the list, because of what Jesus is saying, is broadened, then, then we, can't, we can't necessarily counteract all those things. We think that we can kind of worship away our sins. Occasionally, yep, got angry with my son on Monday, but I've been really kind to him Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so we're back to good. But you can't worship away your sins, is what Jesus is saying. I want to take you back to that parable. It's really helpful that sits at the middle of this. He says, enemy or a foe, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. And I think it's because you actually can't approach the altar, is what Jesus says. It's not that, oh, that, that offering will be less valuable. Jesus is saying, you can't. You can't come and worship me. You can't worship God till you've dealt with your sin. You can't worship away your sins. I remember talking to a, um, a person who was a missionary and they'd had a huge falling out with someone. And they had no inclination or desire to resolve with them. Um, I brought this verse to them. I said, you've got to, you cannot go back on the mission field until you've dealt with this. You can't mission away your failings. You can't say, yep, that part of my life is just not on board, but boy, I'm really serving God well in this part of my life. Jesus says, leave your gift. Leave it. And go and deal with your sin. Go and deal with it. And that's very challenging. Because I do think this is, this is you know, this is, Jesus in part is he's talking to the Pharisees, although they can't hear him yet, but it is, it's the culture of religion in his time, right? Where they thought, yep, we'll just kind of like worship away all of our mistakes. But you can't do that. And you can't do it here. And that's probably what most of us in this building are most, most at risk of, to be honest. Not murder or sexual immorality, but actually this belief, mistaken belief, that some parts of our life which just do not conform to the Lord's will can be blocked out by other parts that do. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because this is, this is why we don't talk about sin. Isn't sin a private matter? Isn't that something for me to deal with, not you? And you know what? On one level, you're right. It's not for me to deal with your sin. I've got enough of my own to deal with. Thanks. Like, it's not for me to peer in and to kind of point out all the issues that you are struggling with necessarily. But on another level, sin is not a private matter. It's not a private matter. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we were starting the Sermon last week, the sermon on the Mount last week, I said to you, the Mount, this key moment of revelation right from God in, in the story of Israel, very significant geographical location, and, but we can't understand Jesus' teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount without reading it through the second mountain of the Gospel, which is the Mount of Crucifixion, the, the moment when Jesus goes up and dies on the cross. And I think that's true here for this. It, it remains true through his sermon, actually. And I think it's true here. 
I think it's only when we look at the second mountain that we understand that actually Jesus has a right to speak into this. And there's two things I just want to reflect on about what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5 in light of the second mountain. The first is that when we look at the cross, right, when we start to by faith look at the cross for what it is, the sinless Son of God being nailed to a Roman cross and dying, we see what sin really is as well. You know, I said to you, do you have clarity about the seriousness of sin? Do you have clarity about it? Are you on board with the way that Jesus thinks about it? Well, the only way you actually get that clarity is by looking at that second mountain. Here's what the Apostle Peter says in his sermon uh, on Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. He's on the steps of the synagogue and he's preaching to, to the Jewish people. And he says in the middle of the sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, it's pretty likely that of the, of the more than 3,000 people in that group, most of them were not in the courtyard before Pilate crying crucify him. But Peter has no problem saying you crucified him because he's come to understand that the death of Jesus is not attributable just to Pilate and Herod and a bunch of conspirators in the Jewish um, religious leadership. It is the responsibility of every sinful person because Jesus is going up the mountain to die for the sin of the world. Peter is saying, you want to know how serious your sin is? There it is on the cross. You want to have clarity about the impact and the damage of your sin, about the seriousness of your predicament, and about what it might look like to go to judgment and hell? It looks like that forlorn man hanging on a cross, forsaken and forgotten, bearing the full guilt of the world. That's what it looks like. And in a sense, that's a lesson for us. You... If we want to really understand our true state, it comes by meditating on the cross of the Lord Jesus. That's where, that's where we really understand ourselves. As, as by faith we look at that and understand that that man died for us. That sinless son of God suffered for us. But the second, there's, there's another thing that that I think reading Jesus' teaching illuminates um, in Matthew 5, reading it through this lens of the second mountain illuminates for us. There's actually a way out in this passage. There's a way out of your sin. I don't know if you saw it. And it would have escaped, I think it escapes us unless we read this passage in, in view of what Jesus has done. Did you see? There is one way to get out of your sin in this passage. It's, in, it's again in that that great little parable at the centre of it. Here it is, verse 26, he says, Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus says, there's one way out. You just have to pay all of, all of the debt for your sin. You just, have to, you just have to make up for the death of Jesus. Of course, without the cross... That is just an onerous 
That's just an onerous statement, isn't it? But when, when by faith we look at the cross of Jesus Christ as the scriptures present it, which is Christ's willing payment of himself for us, this is, this is our way out. But only when you, by faith, accept that Christ went to the cross for you. There's a great analogy in the Youth Alpha program of, um, you know, a, a prisoner going before a judge and being sentenced and then the judge stepping down and paying, you know, the, the, the fine. But in the cross, it's not just the judge who steps down, but it's the victim who steps across. And that's what it is. Jesus is both the victim and the saviour on the cross He's both the crucified and the generous God of the cross. And so we, we can come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and actually be able to fully grasp the seriousness of our sin but not be crushed by it. If by faith we understand what Jesus is teaching in light of the cross, we can understand it. By faith we can see the seriousness of sin but not be crushed by it. In fact, we can find God's ordained way out of it in the Lord Jesus. And what happens then when you accept that is you can actually go to the altar and make your offering. And it's not an offering that seeks to offset, but it's an offering of praise and thanksgiving. It's a genuine offer of gratitude, gratitude and joy, which comes because Christ, Christ has paid it all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are not worthy to come before you, Lord. Because not only our actions, but our inclinations, Heavenly Father, are often to set you aside and to enthrone our own desires and longings at the centre of all things. How ridiculous that we might try to do that with you, great God of heaven and earth. But in your mercy, Lord, you have offered us a way out of our own sin, of the sin that which makes us both victims and oppressors, it makes us both perpetrators and sufferers. And you have graciously been willing to bear that, that great cost. Heavenly Father, give us faith to appreciate the cross in all its fullness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in all its depth and so to be transformed, Heavenly Father, so we might come to your altar with joy and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.